Hello, and you're very welcome to The Week That Really Was with John McGurk and our still absent Sarah Ryan. The good news is that I am back. I want to thank Gary and Neve for looking after me after this show in my absence last week. I had a personal and family bereavement. My beloved uncle sadly passed away. Uh, and thanks to those of you who noticed that and were kind enough to send your condolences. I really appreciate it. Um, Sarah is still in Greece on her holidays. She'll be back with us next week. But in the interim, I have somebody who might actually be, she won't listen, so I can say this, even more interesting. Um, one uh, one of the things about this show is I, I listeners know I write a lot for a living, um, but and therefore it's sometimes a little bit intimidating to talk to people who are objectively better writers than I am. But this person is one such person. He's got a substack called the Fitstack. Um, he's Mr. Connor Fitzgerald. Uh, Connor, how are you? You're very welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me on. Uh, yeah, no, I'm good. Did you get? Did I get that right about the? the yeah, stack? it's Tell um, it. Uh, it FITZ fit stack, yeah. Um, and because of changes to uh, to uh, links to Substack on Twitter, it's basically connorfitzgerald.com. So everything redirects there. And um, that's the actual website. So, yeah, everything I've been published a couple of different places, but basically uh, been concentrating on the Substack for the last couple of months. And I'm planning to for the next while because it's been going pretty well um had a medium blog before that so i've been doing writing in various different forms on cultural political social topics for about six years so. yeah you're, you're one of those people i come across they're the most annoying kind of writer who's the writer who has a better idea that i kind of had in my head and was thinking i was going to put into a piece and then i find you've already articulated better than i am connor if you're if you are interested in current affairs connor doesn't write the way i would write i'm kind of a daily person talking about sort of day-to-day stuff connor goes into issues in a much deeper way and one of those we're going to talk about in a few moments but i wanted to kick the show off connor by getting your reaction so i think we can all agree is the big news of the week which is that the fash have come to carrigstown um on fair city i mean are you concerned for the locals that they might all be radicalized well it was weird because i think you were on news talk uh was it news talk talking about this yes um yes. earlier in the week and there was some commentary i saw from one of the writers so the character's name was fergal mm. and the writer said fergal could be a kind of genius who, who's in charge of Carrickstown or something like that and i was like really is that a potential way that they could go with this character so uh, i'm not sure what the what the future they have planned for the the kind of far right sort of Irish QAnon Dublin taxi driver type character that they've introduced but um I'm going to have to I'm going to have to ask my mum basically because my mum loves Fair City and I found when I went looking for the clips of this character that I could take maybe about 30 or 40 seconds and I had to actually switch off and I had to kind of yeah. get other people's assessments of what the person was actually saying, which seemed to be about I, COVID uh, and yeah, how I, cash I, society and stuff. I, so. I, I, I don't want to be unkind to the hardworking directors, writers and actors of Fair City, but it is fairly obvious, I think, that they operate on a budget. Um, yeah. That's as kindly as I'll put it. Um, no, unkindly as I'll put it. Um, I, 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 I had to watch the clip because I had to, you know, actually... Kieran Cudahy's producer and News Talk rang me up and said, Will you please come on and talk about this? We don't really, can't really think of anybody else. And I tend to be somebody who they go to when they want yeah. somebody to talk about something and they can't think of anybody else. Um, I, I don't know whether that's a compliment or an insult, but, but it's what they do. And I'm always happy to go on. Um, so I, I looked at it and it seems to me, I mean, my instinct, which is generally suspicious of RTE, would be that the direction they're most likely to take this in 
is a direction where this guy kind of starts off talking about currency and cashless societies and then ends up burning down some building and actually being you know crazy and the subtle message will be watch out for those messages yeah a hundred percent actually because I, I posted some extracts from it on my twitter and a couple of people were speculating on what the ultimate outcome of the storyline would be and someone said he'll hit a woman that was basically it and i was like you know what i think i think i'm gonna screen cap that as well as bookmark it because i think the chances that that will actually happen are quite high he'll be like um i'm probably showing my age here but there was a character on eastenders years ago called trevor who was like the main villain he was a he was a wife beater but he'll basically be like the fair city version of trevor you know so he was no richard um, hillman though do you remember richard hillman on coronation no. street okay yeah, yeah. Uh, now we're definitely uh, showing our age yeah, here. Yeah, 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 yeah yeah he was one of, but, he was uh, one of Sorry, just to say he was one of Gail Platt's many husbands. And Gail Platt has the distinction of being a woman who's been married, I think, three or four times in Carnation Street. Every single one of her husbands has tried to murder her. And no one has ever said, Gail, what are you doing? Anyway, I don't watch Carnation Street anymore, but I grew up with it. And I just remember that. Sorry, go my, ahead, Connor. My mom, my mom always watched, and I think still watches, the uh, Sunday evening omnibus of EastEnders. And I, I have almost like a, or I did when I was living at home, uh, I had kind of almost a physical reaction to it. I literally can't sit in the same room mm. as a as a soap opera when it's on. The kind of the the sort of heavy-handed use of emotion and the tendency of the storylines to kind of like go from the start of the scene immediately into kind of like a tone of emotional hysteria. I really, really hate it so much, and it it, it reminded me of that when I had to try and go back and watch that clip. Um, <laughs> But yeah, it was interesting, right? Because I, I was writing something during the week or I was trying to write something about the overarching theme was of, of what I was writing was there's some kind of values gap between the people who manufacture cultural content and entertainment and the people who consume it mm -hmm. that exists at all times. But I think it's slightly larger now than it's been for quite a while. Um, and it's interesting that, you know, they chose to put a character like that in there. You know, it's it's interesting when they see there's a type of person in society and they decide it's worth having someone like that in the show versus just ignoring it when you can do that kind of like 90% of the time. Um, because there's so many things in Irish life where you hear people talking about it or it just crops up naturally in normal conversation. These topics that maybe aren't necessarily palatable to the people who kind of create entertainment, but you hear them around you all the time mm -hmm. in everyday life. And they don't necessarily have to be particularly extreme. It's just someone kind of saying, I'm a little bit uncomfortable with that. And it has no visibility in the media anywhere at all. It puts me in mind of this thing that there's an American writer called Michael Brandon Doherty who said mm -hmm. a couple of times that he thinks Ireland is one of the freest places in the world in terms of personal speech between people but one of the least free in terms of speech in the media. Uh, and obviously that's a kind of like informal restriction, but it's just so interesting to me what they decide that's controversial that they want to put in the show versus actually just ignoring it, you know? It's 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 fascinating that you should say that because it, it's something that, I, that always strikes me as well when I talk to other journalists. I, I'm not a chatterbox. I'm, I'm quite antisocial, actually, so I'm not going to pretend that I'm 
somebody who talks to other journalists all the time, but over the years, I've gotten to know a lot of them well enough to to observe that there are many people in the media who hold beliefs that they would never write about, ever. Yeah. Uh, and I think the, the the reason for that is as is, is a kind of it's a kind of it's the it's the old country of the twitching curtains thing, you know, the fear that somebody is watching you express an opinion, and it might affect in some way your future employment prospects. And we we've seen that happen, obviously, with with a couple of journalists. Um, in this country, obviously in extreme cases like Kevin Myers and George Hook and so on, but we've seen it happen enough that people are careful what they say. Um, so I think you're onto something there. In terms of what you're saying about the culture, cultural gap, though, I'm really interested in that in the context of um, a couple of things. Oh, uh, we said we want to talk about rich men north of Richmond, which we'll come back to in a second. But I mean, if, at the moment, one of the things that's striking me that's happening a lot culturally is the massive gap you see on websites like Rotten Tom- Tomatoes between reviewer, professional reviewer reviews of movies and audience reviews. I mean, a couple of years ago, we had female Ghostbusters. There have been a couple of others as well, where the audience actively seems to hate a lot of what Hollywood's putting out and reviewers say it's brilliant. It, it, do you think the cultural gap yeah. is sort of a Western world thing or is it what's driving it? Well, uh, uh, maybe I, I might be better speaking to your colleague, uh, Gary Kavanaugh, about this, but um, one of the places that emerges uh, most obviously is video games. Mm-hmm. That um, because what you see on Rotten Tomatoes is not just that um, critics like one thing and uh, that uh, viewers don't like it, but there's a kind of actively antagonistic relationship between the people who make stuff and a certain segment of the people who consume stuff. Like it's almost like both of those people, the viewers and the manufacturers of the content are sort of fulfilling their roles in a way to spite the other party, mm-hmm. you know? Uh, and you do see it quite a lot in games. Um, that there's this, I'm, tr- I'm trying to think how I can uh, describe it. Actually, I'm a big computer gamer. Like one of the examples oh, that's interesting. Oh, sorry, sorry. But Baldur's Gate was the one that I was thinking of recently, where basically there was this real kind of split between this is the kind of game that came out, everyone loved it, but it's the kind of one that mainstream Western developers can't create in part because of the economics, but also because they would feel compelled to sort of politicize certain parts of it and they can't just leave it alone and create an experience and let people enjoy it. That was the one I was going to pick up on, but sure. Just to give you a tangential example of the kind of thing that happens in computer gaming. So one of my favorite gaming studios is a Swedish company called Paradox Interactive and they produce kind of large scale grand strategy games and my 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 favorite game of all time is their is their Crusader Kings series which is a game in which you you take a kind of family through history and the family are dukes or counts or whatever and you you start off in the 800s or 1066 or one of those and try and try and grow their legacy uh, and maybe not selling it very well but a couple of years ago the people the good people at Paradox Interactive decided that it wasn't sufficiently representative of LGBTQ people. And so they brought in a game rule where you can now allow gay marriage, uh, or I should say marriage equality, in the 800s. So you can have um, Charlemagne's homosexual brother marry his uh, his knight lover, um, which is one of those things where it's the most transparent example of enforcing your particular social values into a game in which they don't particularly fit. Because if if you want to build a, a history... I mean, I voted for marriage equality, right? I have no issue with it. But it's not, it's a bit only immersion breaking, as they say, to stick that stuff into medieval Francia, 
um, or the Holy Roman Empire. Uh, and that's an example of how I think there's there's a desire to make everything fit into the cultural mores of the moment. And there are many more examples. That's just one that always struck with me as a little bit absurd. Yeah, I always wonder when you see stuff like that, because it makes me obviously think of like the Bud Light stuff in America, uh, where it seems almost as though the people who are in charge of companies are are taking decisions in the face of their, almost, as I said, to kind of spite their audience. But I, I think a lot of the time, it's really about the, when people make decisions like that, it's about the individual people within a company socially positioning themselves. And it's nothing to do with how it's how a particular decision is received by an audience. It's really about how you are behaving so that your peers can see that you're promoting certain values. And it's almost like the business side and the artistic side are totally null and void. It's just a kind of like a social signal to show these are the kind of values I'm espousing in my role in this in this particular company. You know. Yeah, I, I think the other thing that, that's a factor here is um, elite overproduction, yeah. which is is for, for for those listeners who don't know what I'm talking about, it's basically the concept that instead of producing plumbers and carpenters and bricklayers and stuff, we're sending everyone to university now and we're bringing a lot of people out with degrees and things like women's studies and sociology and all the other things. So a lot of these companies like Bud Light is the good example, would have diversity, equity and inclusion programs where you've actually got people employed in the company to say we have to be more inclusive. But nobody's drinking Bud Light because it's inclusive. I mean, I, I can't think of a single product I've ever bought in my life because of the product's, poli- the, the product's political values or cultural values. And I, I have to say, I, I don't think that's true of a lot of people on the left. I'm sure there are some. But it, it seems to me to be employee-driven, as you say. Yeah, I, th- I, th- I think the core thing about Bud Light really was if if Whole Foods has in the US or whoever a, a, a brand whose core audience were very receptive to, to that particular message had decided to do what Bud Light did, th- there would have been no blowback. And I think a lot of the stuff that you're seeing and it includes, you know, you were talking about movies earlier, is a lot of political messaging uh, moving into spaces that were previously considered neutral or actively antipathetic towards that particular type of messaging. I think I was thinking about Bud Light previously because um, someone was talking about it and they were trying to get to the root of what had actually happened there. And I think that that's why that specific one was such a, mm-hmm. a flashpoint. It's because the 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 difference between the brand and the message and the message, there was such a mismatch there. I think that was the kind of core problem really. And maybe that gets back to a lot of the movie stuff as well, that you know, you're trying to sell something to an extremely mainstream audience as middle of the road as possible and create something that's as middle of the road as possible. It's not really uh it's going to stir up a lot of dissatisfaction if you kind of introduce very specific and partisan political messages or ideas into that, you know. And it's provoking this kind of backlash too, because um, I said we we talk about Sound of Freedom, but Sound of Freedom, sorry, I said we talk about rich men north of Richmond, but I also want to talk about Sound of Freedom because they're both connected in my mind, which is we're seeing for the first time maybe in my lifetime, and maybe the first time ever, 
sort of high quality countercultural reposts to that coming out because obviously this movie Sound of Freedom, which is I think just being released in Ireland this week, is about um it's a movie, a very Christian inspired movie about people trapping something like that and it's gone gaga amongst a certain audience uh, in the US and then you have this song Rich Men North of Richmond which is um, rocketing up the charts I think it's been the number one selling song in the US in the last week or two which is basically somebody singing about how terrible the for want of a better word progressive establishment is um, so are we seeing this kind of are we, are we going to see like we saw Fox News emerge in the US to kind of counter the rest of the media are we going to see kind of like conservative or Countercultural entertainment um, things develop, or do you think those two are just accidental? I think the thing about uh, Sound of Freedom, I obviously haven't seen it, nor I, nor I. I, I. I don't think I've actually even seen the trailer. But I think the interesting thing about that was that it's not like it has an extremely hardcore Christian or conservative message, because you do occasionally see these things you know, uh, going through American cinemas where someone has targeted like a Christian audience or something. I thought they produced a movie. It gets really popular. And then you watch the trailer for it and you're like, okay, it's obviously explicitly and overtly Christian and targeting that particular audience. Yeah, so so my, I my, think, just say my good friends, Anne McElhinney and Caleb yeah. McAleer, who are Irish filmmakers in the US, and they, they made a great career for themselves making kind of explicitly partisan conservative movies. So they, they did one about Hunter Biden recently, they did one about um, that abortionist Kermit Gosnell in Pennsylvania who was convicted of all sorts of horrific crimes, and they have existed. But as you say, th- these are more these are more sort of pitched at a mainstream audience. And, and that, that what well, that's the thing that interests me about the Sound of Freedom one. It's like there's nothing in the actual text of the thing itself that makes this an inherently uh, conservative or right wing thing. But because it's about child trafficking, it's got all these associations that in in the mind of a particular type of person to do with QAnon and, uh, you know, uh, mysterious uh, caverns under pizza shops and stuff like that. But that's not in the movie per se. And I just find it really interesting that polarization has reached a point where it doesn't have to be explicit in the text of the movie that it's a conservative movie or a Christian movie or whatever to alienate um, a critical, uh, you know, fraternity. It just has to implicitly, or it has to touch on certain subjects that are implicitly associated with right-wing people or non-liberal people. And that alone means that you can't give it a good review or say something nice about it or take it seriously as a movie. That that's what uh, what interested me because it seemed like that seemed like an additional layer of mm-hmm. polarization or additional uh, kind of step of polarization that we've added recently. You know, I, I definitely agree with you. I mean, I think there's this sense now, and, 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 and let's face it, it's on both sides in sort of the culture war, where if the other side likes something, it must be bad. That's the that's the the almost. The, I mean, because I, and I will be guilty of this myself. I mean, if if Una Malali, God love her wrote a review in the Irish Times saying that a particular movie was enthralling and had a brilliant message, uh, I would say that's not for me now, um, just instinctively without having... And I, I'm wrong for that. But I mean, I, I, I think there is... You know, we've reached a stage of polarisation where you know values are so heavily lathered on that once they're kind of brought into a conversation, people immediately use them as kind of cues. Okay, well, if, if Steve Bannon says that's a good movie, it's obviously right-wing trash. 
for whom Malali says that's a good movie. It's obviously insufferably preachy. Um, I mean, that's that, that, I, 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 that's happening more and more, I think. Yeah, I'm trying to, as hard as I can, sort of expunge some of that stuff from, um, I'm, and maybe this is something you do, reflect on the things that I've written or the things that I talk about and stuff like that, and, uh, of, of being less kind of certain uh, in terms of what I'm saying and less kind of closed off to particular ways of thinking about things or ideas or stuff like that. That's something I've tr tried to do personally in writing in the last couple yeah, of things yeah. that I've written of like, you know, just just uh, be a little bit more measured because sometimes I do reflect on the things that I've written and I was like, I was too certain about that. I was too dismissive of a particular perspective and it's just quite aside from the quality of writing, I fundamentally don't think of myself as an incurious person or mm -hmm. someone who is closed-minded about particular things. And to the extent that's reflected in my writing at all, I hate that. And I'm, I'm trying very consciously in the recent things that I've written not to do that. I just wonder, is that something you're conscious of? You know, it's, it's, it's something I'm hugely conscious of. And it's something that I try to do a lot in my own writing. I, mean, I always offer people my, my views, honestly, on what, what they are. But I, I, the number one lesson I try to impart to my colleagues at Grift, who are mostly brilliant at this, but you know, not always because people have strong views, right, is to consider that there are other people who hold the opposite view just as strongly and try at least and articulate their argument or represent their argument, if you're going to talk about it, as fairly and as comprehensively as possible. It's it's the least you could do because it makes you think from the other perspective. Uh, and chances are you won't agree with it, but if, if you're just writing people off uh, and not seeing what they're saying, then I don't know how you could possibly argue against it effectively in the first instance, if that's what you want to do. And in the second instance, you will find you, that nobody is right 100% of the time. No, no political ideology, nobody is, is right. I mean, if, the, if conservatives have been right for the last 100 years, probably wouldn't have a health service. Um, you know, so, so I mean, it's, 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 it's one of those things where you have to, you have to try and understand, you have to try and combat the very instinct I'm talking about there, but while recognizing it exists and, and that, that its existence is a bad thing, I think. Yes, yeah, definitely. It's 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 not um it's not an excuse to turn off your critical faculties or to, you know, stop being a, uh, in in a good way a judgmental person because it's normal to be sort of have a perspective and that kind of thing. But I think sometimes to maybe just dial it back a little and try and let uh, leave room, uh, particularly for readers to draw their own conclusions or the logical conclusion without you necessarily wagging a finger in their face. You know. Mm. So. Entirely, I was watching the Republican presidential debate, which happened this week. I was watching that last night. I should have been asleep, but mm -hmm. it was kind of half one before I went to bed. And then, oh, this is going on in 10 minutes. I'll watch the first 15 minutes of it, see how they do. And then all of a sudden, it's nearly 4 a.m. And there I am still watching it. But one of the things that struck me is it wasn't available on television in Ireland. So I was watching it on a YouTube stream, which was hosted by a progressive. The only one I could find was hosted by one of these kind of like progressive left-wing YouTube talkers, and he was occasionally interjecting to say what the candidates were doing, were saying that was inaccurate. And I found it really enthralling, because he pointed out, like, there's just that there were different perspectives on issues, where I would hear a Republican candidate say something about um, increasing the size of the IRS, which is the American equivalent of the Revenue Commissioners, for example, and this guy um, stepped in to say, they're not actually increasing the size, the new staff is to replace retiring staff over a period of time perspective I didn't know. I think it's very valuable to listen to opposite um, sides of an argument because you will sometimes internalize things that just aren't correct. But 
Uh, yeah, I, I think the tone of, um, in fairness, the tone of American political TV is so unbelievably screechy and moronic that um, basically any, anything that kind of leavens that, <laughs> oh, yeah. that, that tone uh, is, is, is helpful. But I, I, I am completely fascinated by American politics and have been for like 25 years. I originally came online and started writing because I wanted to write about that not anything to do with Irish politics, mm-hmm. but even I can't watch like five minutes of American cable news. It's just unreal. It's gone very bad. It's gone very bad. I mean, I, I, uh, I, I'm the same as you, actually, in that when I was a student, my, my dissertation, not that it was very good, was on American politics. It was what I was fascinated by, um, and I actually find the whole process has turned into a circus. Um, I think that's Donald Trump's fault. Some listeners will hate me for saying that, but I, I really do think it is. Um, and it's 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 largely unwatchable. But I was interested to watch it last night because, you know, I don't think any of these guys are going anywhere, unfortunately. But it was interesting to hear a discussion that didn't involve people talking about their huge, huge, huge walls. Yeah. Anyway, um, back to your writing, because I, I and back to this topic in a more sort of specific way, because one of the things that struck me as very interesting this week was a new opinion poll from, of all places, Poland which showed that political polarization is now so stark along gender lines that the majority of young Polish men are voting for a party, the, the, the most right-wing party in Poland, and, and not a majority, but a plurality of young Polish women of the same age are voting for the most left-wing party. And you wrote a fascinating piece um, on this a couple of weeks ago. Um, we were talking about the, the sort of, it, it's called the what's wrong with the what's wrong with men discourse. But it's about more than that, isn't it? It's about the sort of the the increasing divide between the sexes that a lot of people, I think, I think, and I think you think, is driving a lot of this polarization. Yeah. So uh, it's kind of the second slash third piece that I've written on that. Um, I wrote one about six months ago that kind of more directly referenced the idea that if you look at any kind of culture war issue. And you can pick any of them, and you look at opinion polling about them, you will always find that women are disproportionately on the liberal side to a massive degree, and men are disproportionately on the uh, non liberal side to a significant degree. And you can break down political parties as well. And obviously, if you look at things like you can break those issues up around different lines like um, education, but of course, uh, as you probably know, people who earn degrees are again massively disproportionately female so um or increasingly so so mm-hmm. yeah that that was my kind of key point in in both of those articles that really the increasing power of women in terms of politics culture uh society is one of the things that is one of the underlying factors that's driving polarization i suppose i was quite careful I'm not critiquing, um, you know, uh, the fact that women are. are you're you're not saying you're not saying we should take the votes off them and go back. Uh, to I'm them. not saying that yet. I'm waiting yeah. until I've gotten a couple more articles out, and then I can kind of. Sit yeah, but no, that, that, that's exactly it. And um, you know, one of the things that was nice about the most recent article is I took great pains to be sort of like even-handed and reflective about it and got a lot of good responses from women which i was really kind of uh female readers which i was really kind of happy with but yeah like what you're talking about happening in poland there is also happening in uh, sweden 
People talk about the Sweden Democrats, but basically, as I understand it, their um, their voter base is massively overwhelmingly male. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know what you were going to say there. I was going to say you call them the Swedish young blokes. That's what they are. It's young blokes who are, who are casting these votes. Basically, um, and then you, you go to obviously South Korea is probably the most extreme example because I think... I haven't read up on it too closely, but I think they've basically got like an anti-feminist party as being one of the biggest parties in their political system. So uh, so it's it's happening in a number of different places. And it's interesting just to kind of like dig into that and to understand how that difference is playing out and what the what the driving factors might be. Yeah, and I mean it's um like in 2016, between Trump and Hillary Clinton, uh, he won. He won men by 11 points, and she won women by, um, I, I think 16 or something like that. Uh, it's just and a, you can, like it was a huge gap, uh, and I think yeah. it got bigger again in 20. Sorry, in 2020. So it, it, it's absolutely everywhere. And you can kind of see, like, even without looking at the polling or anything like that, like it doesn't take. Uh, gender studies major to see there's something about the Trump phenomenon that's definitively male. You know, there is kind of like a a sort of blokishness or an an obvious attraction to men of someone speaking in that kind of like very sort of like visceral language coming out with this very kind of like deterministic or sort of like firm statements about X, Y, or Z thing that kind of reflect a a level of aggression that you don't get in any other kind of political party or political figure. So even if you didn't know anything about the polling or the kind of demographic trends, you just have to look at Hillary Clinton and her campaign for five minutes on the sorts of things that they're talking about. Or even Joe Biden going to Hawaii. I think I think the first thing he said when he got to Maui, or one of the first things he said is, we're going to go there. We're going to talk to people who have suffered from these wildfires. And of course, we're going to center indigenous voices or something like that. (laughs) And when you actually read the tweet, it just seems to someone who maybe hadn't read anything about politics in 15 years and just read that, they would be like, what is going on? And obviously, that's kind of like a, a more sort of, quote unquote, woke way of thinking or talking about things. But the style of language is much more based around caring, empathy, sensitivity, which I think, obviously, when you read it, is more naturally appealing to women than it would be to men. In fact, I think in a lot of ways, it picks up on the negative polarization thing that you were Mm -hmm. talking about earlier of uh, because the different political parties and different sides of the discussion are skewing more male and female, it creates a sort of uh, negative polarization where the language that they talk in and the issues they put up, pick up on and the way that they talk about them push men and women away mm-hmm. from the different poles and into different positions, you know? Yeah, I mean, it's not new. None of this is new. I mean, I, I think, like you said, we both uh, were interested in American politics. I remember in the late 1990s, early 2000s, when I was kind of studying it, for the first time, there was always this phrase that in the U.S. the Republicans were the daddy party and the Democrats were the mommy party, and that when you know when 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 things required a daddy like wars yeah. or 
you know, economic crisis of that. You voted for the Republicans, but when things required a mommy for looking after the elderly, or I mean, this is all very gendered, but I mean, this this yeah. this is the analysis that was was given. Um, so that's been around for a while. But I wonder. I've got this theory um, on this, which is that. A lot of that used to be moderated. Obviously, men and women are different and instinctively kind of see themselves and the world slightly differently. But the one bunch of people who aren't as polarized compared to the rest of their gender are married women. Married women, and we only got American politics because other countries don't break these things down as closely. But if you're a married woman, your voting patterns in the US shift dramatically towards the center or even the right compared to an unmarried woman. Um, yeah. And I, th I think it's equivalent, although the some reason it's hard to find data on it for married men that if once you become married you're much less likely to vote for trump in a primary for example you're more likely to vote for a more moderate republican candidate i just have this wondering sense that with the sexual revolution and the general sort of change in people getting married later and having sort of different interactions with each other um, sexually at an earlier form in the stage of life but settling down later on whether we haven't actually contributed to that polarization because people no longer necessarily need to vote according to the interests of their family. They're allowed and free to vote more along the lines of their instincts. I'm not articulating that as well as it was in my head. No, I, I, I get what you mean. I mean, to me, it's just, you know, it's the same issue as, as basically the decline of Christianity, which is there used to be a uh, 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 shared interest uh, and shared outlook and obviously there still is to some degree but there was a set of things that everyone agreed on and as that dissipates what reason do you have to to reach an accommodation with someone or what is there that could that you point where you could possibly meet if there's no if there's no shared territory that everyone agrees on you know i do definitely feel that particularly when you look at america sometimes and you look at the political debates i start kind of thinking to myself is it really a country if there's no individual thing that every single citizen of the country decides that is the most important thing or that's something we all agree on or that's a point where we all come together and meet you know is it is it actually still a country or is it just a collection of people you know uh sometimes people say america you know it, it's, it used to be a country now it's just a place to go shopping uh and and i i think that links back to your marriage point in the sense of it was one of a number of institutions that created a sort of like shared destiny mm -hmm. or agreed kind of meeting point or, or shared point of interest and as those things decline and people fragment there's there's less reason to kind of compromise or align with with other people you know it's funny because the the one I can think of when you're asking is there a shared sort of thing, and it's not obviously cultural or national, but the one that kind of strikes me and stands out, but it's very male, is sports. Sports yeah. is probably the only the only kind of last forum where you can go in because I'm a fan of an American football team called the New York Jets, and they have a rule on one of the fan forums that I, that I'm a regular contributor to. Absolutely no politics. We're here to talk yeah. about sport. No, and, and you know what? Everyone gets on, and I'm sure that the, you know if you took everyone in that form and put them somewhere else on the internet where they could talk about um, transgender rights or the war in Ukraine or whatever it is, they'd kill each other. But they're, they're, and I, and that's why, as somebody who writes about this stuff for a living, I I I I always have seen sports as a a kind of a refuge 
a, a place to escape from that kind of um, conflict. Yeah. I know you're not a sports guy, but I'm sure no, 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 no. Uh, uh, no, I do like it, and uh, although I go to see Dublin play football all the time, and it's really for me, for, for me, it's a um, yeah, it's okay to be bitter about someone else's success. That's fine. Um, <laughs> it, for, for me, that, that that's really about me meeting up with my cousins and having a drink and stuff like that. It's not actually about the sport or stuff, but I do I do worry sometimes of like, oh God, I see how politicized other sports have become and what happens one day when that has crept more than it currently has into the GAA. Like, you know, I, th- there's certainly, if you look at a lot of them, um, uh, soccer leagues like the Premier League and stuff like that they're, they're often is very very heavy political overlay on that stuff I mean the the English uh, women's team that were in the final recently are still taking the knee Oh, the, the, the you obviously are not a, a, a Manchester United or a Liverpool fan then or because because they're still doing that at every Premiership game the, the f- I didn't know that right but that's exactly what I'm talking about of like oh god I mean like your point about that forum is really well made but will you be like how long can that be preserved it's, it's interesting you know because I think the interesting thing about the knee thing in, in, in British football is I am convinced I'm 100% convinced that no one actually really remembers why they're taking the knee. It, it's it was, really insane, isn't it? I mean, like they 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 started doing it for George Floyd in Minnesota a couple of years ago, and they're still doing it. And I don't know whether it's I don't I don't know whether it's a general generic racism thing, whether it's a Black Lives Matter thing, whether it is generic sort of inclusivity. I mean, initially it was a protest against the U.S. national anthem by Colin Kaepernick, the quarterback for the San Francisco 49ers, um, and he was reviled for it. And now it's kind of mandatory. So I ignore it because I don't think that any of these football, well, I'm sure there are one or two, but I think most of these footballers who are bending down to take the knee, they aren't doing it because they believe in anything. They're doing it because it's like what you do when you go into a church, right? You genuflect. I you know? think I think it's also they started doing it and then now they can't stop. Yeah. Now when they stop doing it, they're they're the people who stop kneeling, you know. Yeah, exactly. So that's, that's 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 basically the dilemma. But yeah, but it, that 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 kind of gets back a little bit just to tie into the article that I wrote, I was kind of saying, you know, it was about basically like uh, men and women essentially not understanding each other because it got into things like therapy and stuff like that. And like, what is the answer in an increasingly political, politicized world? And and a lot of people like, there's a writer called Richard Reeves who wrote this book of boys and men. I'm sure you probably are aware of it if you haven't read it because he was on every podcast in the world. But um he was talking about you know decline of male role models and stuff i I think it's kind of neutral spaces where people can just be interested in what they're interested in and not feel the need to have it heavily politicized in any particular direction i think that's something that that that's the least you can ask that i think would be good for people Mm -hmm. Uh, but i just don't know how long those can be maintained because the the pressure to politicize certain spaces in order to um in order for certain people to boost their social status by appearing to advocate for social certain social issues is so strong i just i'm skeptical about how long spaces that are neutral can remain neutral and you see it 
you see it every day if you stay on Twitter of a, a particular industry that you thought has nothing to do with X, Y, or Z uh, social justice problem has had some kind of flare up where everyone had to be fired on the museum board because um, because someone liked to tweet or something like that. You know, so. I think there was I, I was I was away for a few days because of the bereavement I mentioned at the start of the show, but I, I think there was something there's something in Ackle this week where somebody at a film festival said something. Yeah, they. Vaguely- they Vaguely tolerant they, about they, they basically liked it. Yeah, the, the, well, they liked to tweet. That's the, uh, sorry, as I understand it, that could be wrong, but they, they basically liked to tweet. So uh, it's that kind of takes back to what I was saying about. I'm sorry, so just to clear, the whole film festival had to apologize, right? Because somebody liked to tweet. Right? Uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, there, there may have been executions. I don't know what the <laughs> ultimate outcome uh, <laughs> of it was, but but this is what I was saying about the sound of freedom earlier, like. It used to be that you kind of got upset about something if it directly did the thing that caused you to be upset. Mm-hmm. But now now you have to distance yourself from something if it's three steps away from you. You know, that's that seems to be the level of kind of like politicization and stuff like that. Well, well, this is what I experience with Gripped all the time. I mean, I, I, I've been uh, editing Gripped now for three years and I've been publishing sort of two pieces a day for on weekdays for, for, for that time. So that's something, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of articles. And I can count on one hand the number of times somebody has said you've written something offensive there. I mean, yeah. two or three times. But I can count on a million. I, I, I wouldn't be here till, I'd be here till the end of the year for counting the number of times where I've been criticized because I quoted somebody who once said something nice about somebody else or something yeah. like that. You know, I mean, it's, 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 it's like, you know, there's, there's kind of this game of find a fascist that goes on, you know? Yeah. Well, he likes a tweet by this guy who follows this other guy on Twitter and you know, you're all of a sudden like, you know, you're, you're Heinrich Himmler. Um, well, listen, John, all I can say about that is if someone reads your article and gets annoyed that you reference someone, I personally have just flattered they're getting annoyed about something that I actually did in the article mm-hmm. rather than just reacting to a headline or something oh, yeah, like that. Yeah, you know? well, they, you, actually, they actually read it. So there's that, you know. You share my frustration, obviously, about, about people reacting to headlines. Well, it's but just often... you're a professional content creator like i'm i'm i don't do this for a living right so it's just it's i'm just really experiencing this now of like basically no one actually reads anything you spend all day on twitter or you know all evening or whatever looking at these articles going up and down your feed and having written an article and seen it from the other side i know that almost no one is actually reading anything Mm -hmm. all of the discourse is about the headline an image accompanying the post or uh, something that someone else said about the post that isn't actually connected to the writer or anything yeah, like that. So 100%. It's, just, it's just amazing to me. Well, I understand it on one level because obviously I'm both a writer and a reader. I try to read as much as I can every day uh, from the Times, the Independence, various US papers. I try to stay best, but there's only so many things, there's only so much content you can consume in a day. And definitely I am guilty from time to time, if you follow me on Twitter, of reacting to headlines. Because, because yeah. I mean, you, you do it. It's it's an instinctive human thing. But again, just like the thing we were talking about earlier on with the, the trying to see other perspectives, it's something you really need to be careful of. Unless it's a straightforward like man arrested for X story, you you do need to take the time to consider what's being said. Not because it's not about being respectful to the writer. That's very nice. We both assume like it when people actually read our stuff. But for your own sake, 
Because I mean, I, I, yeah. there are some people who look like absolute fools in the replies to me for accusing me of saying something when I actually said the opposite. You know, um, totally. And the, the, the other thing is that you can actually create a niche for yourself as a content creator by being someone who actually goes and reads the articles. Because you get a level of insight that other people don't have. And the only reason you have the level of insight is you actually went and read the thing, you know? Yeah, so William Campbell, who does the Here's How podcast, who was on with us a couple of weeks ago and got a, a bit of a mixed reaction from the listenership. But he's he's sort of a, a left-wing version of you or me in that regard, in that he is a guy who's forensic on the detail. That's why yeah. that's why I really like about William, even though I disagree with him on, on, on lots. I mean, he will, he will pull you up on the slightest misplaced comma in a piece because he's actually read them and he, he's made a good he's he carved a good niche for himself over on the left for doing that um so I, I i i agree with that entirely but the problem is even if you've read the article and written about it somebody else won't um read yours so there's that's that's the world we live in anyway we are pushing up against time connor and you've been very good to join me this week i think it's been a really illuminating conversation and when sarah is back we'd love to have you back with us another time um awesome. Um, so that's that for this week um, Sarah will be back with us from her holidays next week we're going to give her horrendous abuse because she's been lying up sunning herself while the rest of, the rest of us have been working um, but I'm looking forward to having her back as well but from now till then from me and from Connor thank you very much that my friends was the week that really was <laughs>